Welcome to the Remarkable Retail Podcast, Season 3, Episode 15. I'm Michael LeBlanc. And I'm Steve Dennis. Oh, Steve, in this episode, we're talking about the future of grocery retail, and we have two of North America's preeminent experts. My podcast partner, I have a podcast called the Food Professor Podcast, Dr. Sylvain Charlebois from Halifax, Dalhousie University, and the one and only Dave Marcotte, Senior Vice President of Operations, Strategic Advisory Services for the global consulting firm Cantar, and one of the nicest guys in <laughs> retail. What a treat talking to them both. I thought I was the nicest guy in retail, but... I'll, I'll get over. I'll get one over of the there. nicest guys. You did say one. You're the other one. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think Dave's quite a bit nicer than I am. But anyway, but uh, most importantly, though, is is leaning on their expertise. I, I uh, yeah. I, I, you know, I think when we were talking about this this episode, obviously, grocery is become an incredibly hot area in terms of yeah. digital transformation. There's a lot of things going on. And grocery is one of those categories where I've spent probably the least amount of time. You and I have worked in Hmm. quite a wide variety of formats and and sectors, but not so much on the food side. So we needed to bring in a couple of heavy hitters. Yeah, lots of interesting things happen. And of course, they had a huge tailwind uh, during the COVID era as food service kind of shut down. And and, uh, a lot of that still to this day uh, retail grocery was flat as a, flat as Belgium, basically, from a results <laughs> perspective, which was, you know, which was quite troubling, actually, to many, because the margins sure. are razor thin, the volumes, you know, the formats. And, and anyway, we'll get into more of that with our guests, uh, Dr. Sylvain Charlebois and uh, David, uh, after News of the Week. So uh, let's talk about our top three ideas for News of the Week. Let's start with uh, Bed Bath & Beyond uh, opening stores, or I guess... Um, pop-ups or whatever you want to call them inside Kroger. What do you, what do you think about that? Well, there's actually quite a lot of news. There's a big news week for Bed Bath & Beyond. Uh, the Kroger thing got the most attention, uh, but they made some management changes as well. They're buying back their stock. They're launching a digital marketplace. So uh, they're definitely definitely uh, making a lot of moves, as you like making to say. Moves. But the, the Kroger thing is, uh, you know, got a lot of attention. Um not sure I feel about it. I mean, the idea is that Kroger is going to sell some of the baby and home products from Bad Bath & Beyond in its stores, though the initial launch is going to be online only. And then they're planning to roll out kind of shop within a shop, mini shop concept at select Kroger stores. So I don't think we really know exactly what that looks like. But, it, you know, it's interesting, the marrying of these two worlds. You know, you don't typically think of some of the products that uh, Bed Bath & Beyond is known for being in a supermarket. Um, so I think it's interesting, you know, Kroger's trying a lot of different different things to differentiate itself, drive traffic. Bed Bath, Bath & Beyond is a big turnaround story. So strange bedfellows, yeah. I guess. I, I'm not sure I inherently get that lots of people are going to want to buy bedding uh, from Bed Bath & Beyond at a supermarket. I mean, it's the like the mm. magnitude of of how this could move the dial yeah. for either one of them seems a little bit skeptical. I don't know. What do you, what do you think? Does it strike you as a, as a brilliant idea or just kind of much ado about nothing? Well, I think it's somewhere in between because uh, if I look to some of the grocers like, uh, like a Loblaw in Canada, they have a whole Joe fresh line, which came out of what else can we put in the store since we have such trip frequency, right? So the grocery right. gets a lot of trip frequency. Yeah. It's in many cases, a weekly shop and it was quite successful. So when you walk into some of the, what they call the great Canadian superstore. It's one of their banner formats. Yeah. It's like more like a target 
where right. you've got a whole side or a Walmart, you've got a whole side of the store that is fresh and frozen and grocery, and then you've got, you know, traditional department stores. So yeah. from that perspective, I don't know if there's enough margin to go around between the two of them. That's yeah. what's yeah. interesting to me. Uh, you know, it's a higher margin product. I think it, it um, I don't know, maybe it's a good test for Kroger to kind of get and step beyond because I think they're, they could be losing customers who go to Target and say, well, I'm going to go, you know, I need some baby clothes and some groceries. Right. These yeah. things, you know, it's mom, right? So yeah. it actually pulls back the lens in my mind and says, let's look at the customer, not the commodity. So from that perspective, right. as you say, I think, I think it's somewhere in between. It could work. All right, let's talk about uh, number two. Let's talk about Allbirds. Their IPO hit the skies. Uh, some <laughs> pretty, good, pretty good results, actually, from a, from, a, from a stock performance perspective. I guess I, I read that some were saying that that was a bet or a forecast on the overall concept of sustainability and, and ESG in retail, which seems a lot of responsibility to freight on little Allbird shoes. <laughs> I was going to say, they're definitely punching above their weight. Yeah, well, this first of all, they should fire their underwriters because the stock popped 90% on the first, the first day. <laughs> uh, but yes, it was certainly viewed uh, as a successful IPO. Their market cap, I think the day they closed, was over $4 billion, which... Um, I took some heat on Twitter for saying it's a crazy, that's a crazy valuation. I mean, here's yeah. a brand that uh, is going to do about $250 million in revenue this year, uh, negative uh, 18%, I think, 17% operating margin, planning to open a bunch of stores. They've only got a few. So there's a lot of speculation on how successful their growth strategy is going to be. It's a pretty niche product at this point. But yeah, I think for mm-hmm. you to believe that Frankly, anything above a billion dollars makes any kind of sense. You have to believe that they are going to build some sort of lifestyle sustainability brand, you know, far bigger than than uh, what their aspirations appear to be right now. So yeah. a lot has to happen for them to grow into that valuation. So I'm pretty skeptical on this one, but but we shall see. It's going to take some time to be able to mm. understand whether this is uh you know, sort of the Boston market or WeWork valuation of our, of right, our day. Right, right, right. All right. Well, let's talk about our third and final, um, our favorite. You and I talk about this off the mic a lot of times, Wayfair. So Wayfair, uh, yes. I think you described their earnings as, as a whiff, a swing and a miss. Uh, let's talk about Big Wayfair whiff. and what, what, what does this say? Yeah. What does this well, all say? Well, in the spirit of full disclosure, if people go back a little bit, they have that kind of time, which I hope they don't. Uh, I've been, I've been, uh, kind of negative on, on Wayfair. Again, not not as a good business and not as having done a lot of great things, but the valuation on this company has been pretty crazy for a number of years. Uh, they've been in business, I think this is their 18th or 19th year. A couple of years ago, they lost a billion dollars in one year, and yet the stock kept going up because this is a great growth story. COVID came yep. along, and they made their first profit in the history of the company. And they had several quarters where they actually made money, uh, but kind of the perfect storm, right? A lot of stuff moved online because stores were closed. People were investing in the home. Like everything was going their way. Stock went up to like, I don't know, 350 bucks or something, market cap, $35 billion. And then along comes this quarter, sales down, have to look 19% year over year, uh, $250 million swing in profitability from making money, to losing, um, I think, $78, $80 million in the quarter. 
So um, I think this, you know, number one, just sort of speaks to really the challenges of Wafer as a business really being um, sustainable at the levels they've been at. But I think the broader point is where we start to see some headwinds in these businesses that are e-commerce dominant, that got a gift basically from COVID in terms of yeah. all the traffic they got and just the shift in spending patterns, which we'll get into a little bit because grocery certainly had some of those uh, effects as well. So uh, it's going to be interesting yeah. to see because we're kind of, you know, this rebalancing of e-com versus physical as well as, you know, maybe the the stimulus starting to wear off and some of the things that cause mm. people to spend a lot more money on their home. There's only so many sofas you can buy, right? Yeah. yeah. I also think people are just returning to stores, you know, because they can. And, and you know, you see that in, in some of the sales in the in the full line furniture retailers. There's probably also, cool. by the way, some supply chain challenges gumming up the works for Wayfair. Yes. As, as yes. they are for everyone. I think that's a drag on everyone's performance in that category one to one degree uh, or another. Anyway, it's a nice segment into our grocery section, uh, our grocery focus, because grocery, right place, right time, mm-hmm. uh, you know, they had a huge, immense tailwind. So it's a nice segue. But before we get to that, I wanted to remind everyone, take this opportunity, remind everybody to subscribe in your favorite podcast platform and check out our YouTube site. We've got a bunch of videos up there now. When you and I do this or we, when we do our solo episode, uh, we put it all up on onto YouTube. So we also do some bonus content in the YouTube, so make sure and go and smash that subscribe button. Got to smash it. Kids would say. Very important to smash it. smash it. Uh, can't click it and smash it. <laughs> All right. Well, let's get to our segment now with uh, On Grocery with Dr. Sylvain Charlebois and our friend Dave Marquette. All right. Welcome to the Remarkable Retail Podcast, gentlemen. It's so great to, to listen to you both, Sylvain and Dave. We're going to talk about the future of grocery here. So, Sylvain, why don't we kick it off with you? You and I, of course, know each other well. We are podcast partners, but uh, introduce yourself to uh, Remarkable Retail audience. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I'm uh, I'm at Dalhousie University. Uh, I'm a food professor and director of the Agri-Food Analytics Lab. The lab was created uh, in partnership with with four different faculties: agriculture, management, uh, health, and computer science. And it was created about five years ago, basically to uh, to better understand the future of food, essentially from uh, from both ends of the food continuum, we look at a lot of different issues, e-commerce, labeling, food fraud, uh, retail. Uh, we look at processing, um, different consumer trends, uh, most recently with plant-based. We work with provinces, the federal government. We, look, we work with companies as well, mm-hmm. mostly in Canada. Uh, we don't do much work outside of Canada, but uh, it's been great. Uh, we, we are supported by some key partners, Angus Reid, Nelson IQ, Better Cart. Uh, they all provide us with some great data that we can work with. Fantastic, and you're a very prolific writer. I mean, how many times? How many? You're you're certainly in the media here in Canada. You you've got some reports that go around the world. How many articles have you published? If you had to put a round number to it, or in the last like year? Uh, <laughs> See, there's an answer right there. <laughs> well, yeah, I, I basically uh, so obviously I'm, I'm an academic, so I have to publish uh, peer-reviewed articles. So I have about 500 of them. And over the years, obviously, I've been doing this for 25 years, I guess. And but for for like publicly consumable stuff, 
it's it's basically two a week. Uh, so uh, we, I, I have I have an agent for English op-eds, and I I am a, a columnist for La Presse in Montreal. So uh, and my columns appear once a week on Thursdays. And uh, David, the one man in the world who's read every single thing that Sylvain has ever written. Welcome. <laughs> what? Do I, do I have a virtual stalker? <laughs> I think you've got a virtual fan. Uh, David, Marcotte, tell, David tell, us, uh, tell us about yourself and, and the work you do at Kantar. Sure. Uh, so in Kantar, I'm um, the lead for um, – Kantar, by the way, is a global company that covers – uh, retail in all of its shapes, forms, and kinds. And uh, I'm the global lead for insight. I also do cross-industry, cross-border. Uh, essentially, anything that's complex winds up being in my purview. Prior to this, I was IBM's lead for business intelligence computing, so very large data management. Prior to that, I was retail for 20 years in Canada, the United States, uh, doing just about everything imaginable from the floor all the way up to executive uh, I'm a fourth-generation retailer before me. It's my father owned a pharmacy. My grandfather owned a um, restaurant, and my great-grandfather ran a Hudson Bay station. Um, oh, wow. And most of them were smugglers, too, so that's a whole other discussion <laughs> unto itself. Um, you know, it's, it's important with a name like mine to be able to keep your hand on these things. Yeah, I'm, I'm focused, not unlike Savannah, I'm kind of uh, focused into a range of different industries and such. I have dealt with uh, governments um, and and still do, uh, though I don't, uh, I'm not allowed to talk about it, unlike Savannah. Um, as of late, I've been on the radio a lot, which is kind of bizarre and also in print for interviews. So um, if you do a quick search on me, you see an awful lot of stuff on some really bizarre topics as of late, but mostly focusing on supply chain. Well, I'm curious what the uh, statute of limitations is for smuggling and whether you're going to get busted after your appearance here. But hopefully, hopefully not. It wasn't, but, uh, it wasn't my case of cigarettes. I, I, I plead the fifth in the wrong country. Yeah. <laughs> well, let, let's. Uh, well, first of all, I'm really I'm excited to have you guys here. I'm excited to to talk about grocery for a bunch of reasons. One is I know really very little about grocery. I've worked in just about every product category in a fair amount of depth, but very little about grocery. So it's great to bring in this outside expertise. But also, as everybody knows, grocery is a huge part of the retail world, and it's arguably the industry or the sector of retail that's undergoing the most transformation. So we'll dive into the the uh, impact of COVID and some of the things that are on the horizon. But Dave, I wonder if you could just... Give us kind of your your landscape view of how the grocery industry has evolved in general over the last few years, and then we'll talk about some of the big changes we're going through today. Uh, on a global basis, it's become far far and away more efficient, uh, more capable of managing until the supply chain fiascos that we're going through at the moment. Um, so the ability to manage that and capital outlays for uh, commercial real estate and such. Uh, there was a slow growth going into omnichannel that exploded in 2020 with the pandemic. And now we're getting into 2021 where there's um, an interesting discussion whether to continue the investment, look at it as a competitive issue, which is clearly is in Canada, or to kind of slowly back out of it, which I'm seeing a lot of seeing in a lot of markets at the moment. But aside from that, it's just become a much more polished, much more professional industry overall on a global basis. When you talk about, uh, and maybe we'll dive into this a little bit more, bring Sylvan into it, but when you talk about kind of backing out, what tell, tell us a little bit more about what you mean and why you think that is. 
Well, cost to serve becomes a big issue. Uh, and in, during the pandemic, as long as you had product on the shelf uh, and you could get it to people's homes, you made money. Uh, every retailer in the world basically made outrageous profits last year. So it covered up a host of costs associated to going into an e-grocery format. Um, as you go into 2021 and costs start to change and customer behaviors change and everything else, actually a huge issue that's rising, which we're all in knowledge is labor. That gets it into a place where I have to seriously sit back and go, okay, uh, what is my return on investment? Am I in the right place as a company to do this? So, And so it becomes a strategic investment as opposed to a return on investment. Uh, and that's the same is true in, in most of Europe. When you get into other markets, however, it you do get this serious uh, jaded eye looking at it going, you know, is this the best way for me to make money? And then the second part of that, which I think we should acknowledge, is a good retailer creates shoppers. And so what am I going to do to retrain my shopper to have it, you know, to have every, other expectations? Interesting. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Well, I'd love to, love to come back on that in a second. But Sylvain, why don't we... Bring bring you in and and get your some perspective some of your perspectives, but particularly perhaps what you're seeing in Canada, which is your your primary area of focus. Well, just listening to David, I I, I must say, we're, I, I think a lot of grocers are tempted to tell their customers, you know what, uh, change your expectations because <laughs> because yep. right now things are pretty chaotic upstream and uh, and, and really. Since the beginning of COVID, I've never spoken about supply chains ever in my entire life. That's my area of expertise is food distribution and policy. Lord, you're so lucky. (laughs) I've been been looking at the obscure part of our food systems forever. No one cared, really. Uh, All they wanted to know was the next uh, flavored bagel or the next, you know, pumpkin spice trend and that's what we when we talked about food that's really what we were talking about before covid and now people are concerned about labor and farming and uh and uh processing and uh so there's lots of discussion we're having now that we weren't having before so people walking into grocery stores are really looking i think at grocery stores very differently uh the garden rate has gone up 20 percent in canada uh, that changes things. We've cooked more. Uh, by 2024, we expect the Canadian workforce to work more from home. 70% of Canadians, we think, are going to be working from home at least five days a month, at the very least. That changes everything. I mean, really. Yeah. And so as a grocer, you got to wonder, what kind of customer am I going to be dealing with? So then let's, let's switch gears a little bit for the for the listeners and talk about some developments that uh, are happening here in Canada that have happened other places in the world. And I think um, it may or may not be on the radar screen of, uh, of American retailers, the so-called code of conduct. So yeah. I don't want to get in the nuances of public policy, but... Basically, um, what's happening here is there's a big push to have government step in between vendors and grocers because it seems that many would say, including some retailers, who would say that uh, the power dynamics have gone awry and there's some uh, described as abusive behavior. And um, it's just a fascinating thing I think not everyone has on their radar screen. Maybe you could speak to it a little bit. What what? what what is this kind of percolating around because i think it's going to happen but you tell me what do you what do you what do you see on the horizon 
Oh, yeah. I mean, that, that's another good example of something that I never would have thought would become politicized, really. I mean, how can you possibly get the cane public to care about a code of conduct and spats between grocers and processors? It, it's amazing. And so a working group was created at the federal level, co-chaired by the federal minister of agriculture and the Quebec uh, ag minister, And uh, they just basically provided some a, a bit of a roadmap, I guess, to the industry saying, you know what, get to work, get to the bottom of this, create some sort of code for yourself. If not, we'll, we'll get involved. The reason why a code of conduct, I think, uh, was necessary was to, to support and encourage discipline, I guess. Uh, I don't think that uh, processors uh, mind paying fees. It's the unpredictability, the unpredictable nature of the fees that really became a problem. What was really fascinating is that forever there was some denial uh, among amongst grocers, not all of them, but among grocers. It was just, no, well, this is how we do business in Canada, only to see a bit of a reversal uh, more than a year ago saying, no, we, we do have a problem and we need to fix this. Uh, and so you saw most major stakeholders in Canada getting involved in discussion, including the Retail Council of Canada, which is great. I mean, that's, that's kind of what we needed here. And and to be mm. clear for the for the folks at home, two issues, and then we'll kind of move off of this because it's it, you, we could spend many podcasts on this. One, you know, this is we're talking the P and Gs, we're talking big big vendors here who are on the side of a code of conduct, which is you know we're all capitalists here, but you know this isn't a a movement that is alone in terms of you know big global companies supporting it. There is a code of conduct in the UK, and it's important because you know there are American operators in Canada. Walmart, yeah. Costco, for example. So this is not a, uh, you know, this may or may not be a Canadian issue. So anyway, I just, I just wanted to bring that. Well, just, just briefly, Michael, up. just to mm -hmm. add to your comment, uh, SM, many SMEs care about this. Farmers who sell direct care about a code of conduct also. And don't forget the Canadian Federation of Independent Grocers. Independents don't have the influence like Walmart or Loblaw. So they absolutely are very supportive of a code of conduct as well because they can't really enforce fees mm -hmm. the way Loblaws or Walmart would. Right. And Dave, an, Yeah, I was going to say from an international yeah. perspective, twofold. One, when I, when I mentioned I've been contacted by governments to work, one of them was in this context uh, a few years ago by um, one of the provinces in Canada. Uh, and I opened the conversation, which kind of sunk it, is that, you know, everything I'm seeing in Canada at the moment would be against the law in the United States for monopolies. So that's your first point, is you have an over-concentration in companies that can turn around and do this type of thing. But the second side of this is I've seen codes of conduct in very similar markets come into being uh, in Chile and Australia, which are two markets that have a remarkable parallel to Canada in some ways. You have very large, dominant retailers, and then you know, a number of smaller players that are basically at, at victim, if you wish. So just to expand the conversation, there are, there are other countries to point at, hmm. um, but it is like, to your point, it's quite complex. And I have full expectation and belief that any retailer and manufacturer can probably beat the code of conduct if they're really creative enough. So being um, cynical as I'm supposed to be, um, <laughs> um, I, I would just point that out. The code of conduct would be great, but the, the means of beating it are just infinite. So 
keep right. that in the background. Yeah. Well, 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 while I've got you on the mic, let's let's talk a little bit about let's get back to the the trends and the future of grocery. So, you know, we all witnessed the great acceleration in the grocery space. But is it and, and you, you're kind of hinting at it that not everyone is exactly happy or are they? You described it as a strategic investment. But, you know, this is a big, big trend, whether it's curbside, whether it's, you know, home delivery, whether it's delivery to a third party. What are your what are your thoughts on? you know, the rapid growth of e-commerce and how that's impacting grocers' bottom line from a financial perspective, and where do you think the future lies? Um, well, you know, first in the Canadian perspective, I think Metro, and especially Sobeys, made a strategic decision to make the investment of getting the, the product to the door, which is when you do surveys, overwhelmingly Canadian shoppers come back and say, I want it delivered to my door, um, which is absolutely the most expensive thing you can do. Um, Loblaws, you know, shifted and has been overwhelmingly pushing a curbside, which is a far more profitable activity. So that's what I meant by strategic. Um, in other markets, you don't yeah, have about, that intensity. about the U.S. For, you know, for example, we get, you know, Kroger, yeah, they, Target, Amazon. Yeah. Talk about the U.S. market and, and uh, Well, in terms of the delivery. U.S. market, there's two things going on. One is curbside um, and pickup in store is being encouraged, and then if you want other options, they turn it to you know three P services. So if you want, if you want it in an hour or two, then you know contact Instacart, DoorDash, whatever, and we'll participate with you. Um, and that's kind of a mixed bag. The other side of that is you really only have two national grocers in the United States. One is Costco, and the other one is Walmart, and they're not anywhere you know as pervasive as you want. So what you're seeing from Kroger is an interesting touch, as is Albertsons, which is to go into uh, Cato-type solutions like you're seeing Sobeys and get automation for in-home delivery into markets where they're not currently participating. You know, so setting up a fulfillment center and then delivering as opposed to opening 100 stores. Hmm. Uh, so that's the other side of that that I'm saying, and that's a little bit, you know, that gets you into some of the future of grocery commentary. Um, the one thing I would warn is I was at a grocery shop a couple of weeks ago, which was, you know, first being in person, any place was in ours. But I, I talked to 30 different vendors doing automation there, and they all had amazing automation solutions. They all were very practical. They all were proven. And I asked each one of them, I said, you know, so how long would it take before I could get this in my, my company? And the answer was anywhere from 18 to 24 months. And I said, well, you have that type of backlog. I said, no, no, no. Once we get going, it's four to six weeks to make it live. We just have no materials to build from to actually build the solution. Wow. Yeah. There's no plastics, foams, refrigeration. Anything on the list of stuff I need to build an automation system is is now subject to the supply chain problem. Yeah. Mm. Dave, let's, I'd like to just push on the profitability here a little bit because I certainly, I mean, I have worked in other home delivery businesses and I understand you know, route density and automation opportunities and all those kinds of things. But absent being able to deliver groceries via a robot or drone or something like that, you still have the the human component, the labor cost of getting from wherever that fulfillment center is to a person's home. And just fundamentally, that's always going to be more expensive than the consumer going to the store and getting it themselves, it seems to me. In addition to strategically wanting to have that more emotional connection with the consumer, in addition to impulse purchases and, and so forth. So it just seems to me, even if you go past the supply chain, past the labor issues that we're going to see for a while, strategically, 
it seems like grocers are going to want to push customers to the store for both lifetime value reasons as well as just marginal economics reasons. Am, am I getting that yeah. wrong, or is this just a, you know, Amazon? We basically have to respond no, to Amazon, no, no, no. and got, Amazon's driving no, the race got, to the I bottom. I got asked this morning by a, um, by a manufacturer CEO, and he said, you know, what is C-level thinking in retail? And I said, well, first off, they're thinking 90% of my assets are commercial real estate. So you've got to get that organized in your head and that if I'm in retail on a large on a larger scale uh, commercial real estate is overwhelmingly my asset so you know moving outward and, and and delivery to home and everything else has a buzz to it but at some point or another I have to get very hard-headed and say you know do I want to weaken my asset can I re-leverage right. it in another way all of that's related and then you get to the labor side which last time I checked is not getting cheaper um, and also the gig, the gig economy is under attack in almost every country it's in. Um, so using that as a labor alternative is starting to come under fire. You know, there, there, there's stresses here. That doesn't mean that it will go away. But I think the pattern I'm seeing consistently is if you want it in your home, we're going to connect you to Uber, Instacart, or you know, one of those players. And, mm-hmm. and we'll let you work with them, and they can take the hit because, frankly, they're losing money on it. Also, <laughs> I was um, going to say, I'm, I'm still looking to yeah. find the people that are making money in this, other than the uh, venture yeah, capitalists well, and well, investment bankers. A, well, you you put your finger right on it. Which I I've, I've started when I teach finance now. I teach finance, including venture capital, because I say it's become a distorter. If I'm in a business where I don't have to make money, I just need to make volume, which of course is the great dot com um, mythology. That's the VC thing. If I'm competing with a VC, uh, they, it can get very distorted because I have to make I have to make a margin. They don't. Um, yeah. Once they become public, like Uber does, it's it can be a little awkward when you start seeing their numbers, um, <laughs> yeah. and you know then you start getting a, a site underneath that. But I really, you know, to your point, uh, there's a great comment which is you know the artificial intelligence is neither artificial or intelligent. Um, which really puts its finger on something along what you're saying, which is at the end of the day, all of this stuff is dependent on labor. No matter how much automation you put in it, it requires labor. And I'm not seeing any indication in the next couple of years that that's going to get to be a lighter load. You know, but you, give, you need a different kind of labor, though. I mean, that's the thing. And uh, I don't know what's going on in the U.S., but in Canada, I, I do feel that there is this recognition that labor uh, skill set will have to change. Uh, gro- let's face it, grocery stores in Canada are not well managed. Uh, I mean, a lot of things do happen uh, at head office and to operationalize anything is very difficult with the exception of perhaps, uh, Walmart and Loblaws and cause they have a very centralized model. But for, for grocers, it's been very difficult to forecast, to, uh, to understand the consumer uh, before or at least provide the consumer what he or she needs before he or she knows. And yeah. that's been uh, that's been a challenge in Canada, anyways. And and I think there is this recognition that we need to do more, and 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 they don't necessarily have the people in place to do that to get to a different place. I think that's all true. And I'm, and the other side of that coin is, I often feel that we should take people making those statements and put them in a grocery store and work for a week. Yeah. Might change. Uh, by the way, that's interesting. One of my coworkers from a few years ago changed jobs and eventually wound up working the floor at Tesco. I think it was Tesco or Asda. I think it was Tesco. 
uh, in the UK, Brian Roberts. And he had an absolute revelation about being a retail analyst versus being a retail worker, uh, <laughs> which could be summarized as the idea of unskilled labor is beyond stupid. Um, yeah. as if you're on the floor for more than a week, you're, you become skilled by, by necessity. One of the reasons that grocery succeeds and doesn't is because it's universal. It either works across all economic groups or it works across none. And mm. that's actually where I think you're going to is not understanding your market when it's shifting is when exactly. bad things happen. Yep. Well, I know we're coming up on time and there's a million things to talk about. Maybe we can just do kind of a quick take. And I don't know, Michael, if you want to jump in on here. But what what was the one thing we didn't talk about that we should have talked about or we should be paying attention as grocery evolves into the future? Uh, I'd say uh, like store design, consumer trends, uh, particularly with proteins in general. Uh, it's a mishmash of different things right now. And, and proteins are, are huge revenue generators uh, for grocers. Uh, prices are going up. Shoppers are, are, are moving beyond the meat counter. What's going on there? You can see that really the approach is absolutely not sophisticated, or at least not enough. Uh, when you look at, uh, at the consumer looking for different options, uh, I mean, there was a report last week that came out. Uh, we are expecting uh, the Western world to double its consumption of fish and seafood by 2050 mm. or something, mm. which to me, makes a lot of sense given what's going on with animal proteins or land-based animal proteins. But I think there's, it's a work in progress that is going to last for a long time, I think. Uh, that's one thing that perhaps we should underscore. Yeah, the, and actually a follow-on on that from personal experience is the hardest thing about um, running a seafood counter in any type of store, including grocery, is educating the customer that there's something other than salmon. Um, you know, salmon's what? safe. I mean, salmon, you know, yeah, salmon's an easy fish to cook and it's safe. And usually yeah. a lot of people cook that. Shrimp's another one. But, you know, there's so many different types of fish that are equally nutritious that are intimidating um, until people cook them a couple of times. So there's an education side of that discussion. Well, we feed, we feed salmon chicken in aquaculture. Oh yeah! Did you know that? <laughs> yeah, circle of oh, life. That's how, that's how sick circle our model is, and people will notice. People will start to know more about these things, and and we'll ask questions about different species and where they come from. And yeah, I think we're just at the beginning of something. Yeah, you actually you actually identify a real serious issue, and I've read about it from you before, which is uh, you know selling fish that isn't the fish that you think you're buying. Um, yeah, food, you know, food committing, fraud. For, food committing fraud, fraud either yeah. on purpose or not. But yeah. in yeah. reality, you can do that because you know, nine out of ten people buying fish haven't a bleeding clue what the hell they're buying. And that's, that's, that's a concern. It's an education one. I think, you know, just to finish off, what we talked about before we even got on going here was sustainability um, and the mm -hmm. complexity thereof. Um, I think at some point in the grocery industry, the, there's going to be a need for a clear-cut industry statement to sustainability as opposed to the pure randomness that we're dealing with at the moment. Yeah, I agree 100%. In fact, Michael and I have been talking about um, really lifting up this issue of sustainability more broadly on a future episode. So stay tuned. Thanks for bringing that up. Um, I'm afraid we're going to have to leave it there. But uh, I appreciate you guys coming on and sharing your perspectives and uh, perhaps have to have you back soon as there's a lot going on in this industry. But help, uh, thanks for helping us understand it just a bit better. Superior Michael Savone, as always, a pleasure, yep. Steve. Good hearing from you. Take care, guys. 
And if you like what you heard, please follow us on Apple, Spotify, Amazon Music, or your favorite podcast platforms. So you can catch up with all our great interviews. Subscribe so that just automatically shows up. Uh, tell your friends and, and also uh, in new insights and new episodes will show up every week. So tell your friends uh, because that will help us uh, share the word, the good, the, the, the good wisdom. Now, be sure and check out, <laughs> and be sure and check us out on uh, our new YouTube channel. Not so new anymore. We got a couple episodes up there, uh, and just look for Remarkable Retail. And I'm Steve Dennis. You can check out more of my work at my website, stevenpdennis.com, or on Forbes, or on Twitter. And please check out my second edition of my book, Remarkable Retail: How to Win and Keep Customers in the Age of Disruption. Available just about everywhere books are sold. And I'm Michael LeBlanc, producer and host of the Voice Retail Podcast and a bunch of other stuff. You can find me on LinkedIn. Learn about me on meleblanc.co. All right, Steve, great episode. Look forward to chatting again next week. Be safe and uh, have a great rest of your day.